Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34 are a section of the book of Exodus, in fact, a section of the entire Bible that we could really call a literary mountaintop. In those two chapters, we find some amazing experiences in the life of Moses. They come right after a a time in Israel's history, which was really for all intents and purposes one of the low points. Israel had just been miraculously delivered from bondage in Egypt, led by God's miraculous hand to the foot of Mount Sinai. God appeared to them from the mountain, gave them the covenant, and within a short time Israel had already violated that covenant. It was a low point, and God already acted in judgment against those who sinned in Exodus chapter 32. But Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34 are then a mountaintop. Understandably, Moses, very, very, very much aware of the fickleness of the people of Israel, wanted to know for sure that God would go with him as he would lead the people to the promised land and into it. He wanted to know that God would be with him. And so when we pick this up in Exodus chapter 33, we read these words in response to Moses' question and his petition that God manifest himself in some way to Moses to demonstrate, to prove that he would go with Moses and the people Beginning in verse 17, we read this, Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. However, we continue reading in that chapter that Moses would not be able to behold an unfiltered version of God's glory, this goodness of which Yahweh speaks in this text. And so the Lord promises to Moses that He would take him and hide him in the cleft of the rock and put his hand over him and allow Moses to see and to hear what would be a a filtered version of God's glory. And that is then what happens in Exodus chapter 34, where we begin reading in verse 6, actually verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he, a reference to God himself, called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That statement in verses 6 to 8 comprises what is some of the most well-known words in the biblical account In fact, these words are so important that subsequent biblical writers will pick up these words and repeat them frequently so that this text of Scripture is the most frequently repeated text in the Old Testament. And what we have in verses 6 to 8, this statement by God himself serves as, in many ways, a, a, a list of God's perfections. But what is to be viewed here, what is to be understood is that this revelation, these words are God's own exposition of that statement that we find back in chapter 33 verse 19 where he says, I myself will make all 
my goodness to pass before you. These words in Exodus 34 are that exposition of God's goodness. Those attributes of which we read in that text flow out of this fundamental characteristic of our God. So important is this text that Stephen Charnock made this statement. He said, quote, all are streams from this fountain. He could be none of this were not he first good. When it confers happiness without merit, it is grace. When it bestows happiness against merit, it is mercy. When he bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When he performs his promise, it is truth. When it meets with a person to whom it is not obliged, it is grace. When he meets with a person in the world to which he hath obliged himself by promise, it is truth. When it commiserates a distressed person, it is pity. When it supplies an indigent, uh, indignant person, it is bounty. When it succors an innocent person, it is righteousness. And when it pardons a penitent person, it is mercy. All summed up in this one name of goodness. That is who our God is. And that is what we will study this evening as we continue our series on the perfections of God. What does it mean that God is good? Let's begin with a definition of this attribute of God. Let's look at what goodness means in light of how it is defined by the very character of God. And we can define goodness in this way. The goodness of God is that quality of his essence that makes him profoundly generous to his creatures. That's how we can define God's goodness. It is that quality about him that makes him inherently and profoundly generous to his creatures. In other words, God is inherently disposed to show kindness to what he has made and to act for the well-being of his creation. We can look at it this way, that that which is good, we can define that which is good as that which brings benefit, that which brings an advantage, that which brings blessing. That which is good, we have to understand, is, is, is morally good, and that's often how we define it when we say such and such or so and so is a good person. We often are using that, that term good to refer to moral excellence, and certainly that's part of this understanding of goodness. We can also use the term good to refer to something of quality or competency. We can say so-and-so is a good carpenter, for example, and that carpenter can make a good table. And those are terms or that's a reference that refers to skill, to competency, to quality. But God's goodness is more than that, more than moral uprightness and excellence and more than skill and competency. God's goodness refers to the fact that what he is and what he does is always inherently a benefit. It is always advantageous to others. He is always a blessing. And it's important to note that it is not only that God does what is good, it's not only that God is beneficial to his creatures, but that God himself is the good. He himself is the benefit to his creatures. We can further define this by recognizing that God is good in this way. He is inherently advantageous or inherently a blessing to creation by, by recognizing that he is good not because he conforms to some kind of external rule, some rule outside of himself, some impersonal rule that exists somewhere in the universe 
of goodness. Not at all. God himself is the standard. God himself is the sum of goodness. God himself, his essence, is the very source of all that which can be truly defined as good. In fact, any time when we make any kind of assessment that something is good, whether that is in terms of moral excellency, whether that is in terms of quality or competency, any kind of assessment we make about goodness, if it is even partially true, is owing to the fact that God has revealed himself to be good. He is himself the standard. Moreover, this goodness that God is, is not something that God does just from time to time. Rather, his goodness is his very essence. He always is maximally and perfectly, without waxing or waning, he is always perfectly good in his essence, even apart from his works. But when he works, his works automatically carry that quality because they come from him. Again, going back to Stephen Charnock, he defined God's goodness this way, not a habit that is added to his essence, but it is his essence itself. He is not first God and then afterwards good, but he is good as he is God. He is good because of his essence, not just because He does good. And sometimes we fail to make that recognition. And when we talk about our gratitude for God's goodness, we conceive of it almost exclusively in terms of what he has done. And certainly we are to be so grateful for what he has done. But as we study the scriptures, we realize that our gratitude is to extend far beyond just what he has done and to focus on God himself, on his essence as being that sum of all that is good. In terms of further definitions here, Wilhelmus Abrakel, that Dutch Reformed 17th century theologian, defined God's goodness in this way. He said this, quote, The goodness of God is the loveliness, the benign character, the sweetness friendliness, kindness, and generosity of God. Goodness is the very essence of God's being, even if there were no creature to whom this could be manifested. Louis Burkhoff similarly states this, the goodness of God is, quote, that perfection in God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. It is the affection which the creator feels towards his sentient creatures as such. Putting this in the words of J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer in his very well-known book, Knowing God, that classic, has a great section in that book on the goodness of God, and this is what, what he states in response to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to eight, he says this, quote, with the cluster of God's moral perfections, those in Exodus 34, there is one in particular to which the term goodness points, the quality which God especially singled out from the whole when proclaiming all of his goodness to Moses. He spoke of himself as abundant in goodness and truth. This is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. Generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality which determines how all 
God's other excellences are to be displayed. Now, when we read that kind of a definition, there is something in it that on the one hand draws us to it, and on the other hand, it, it makes us uncomfortable for various reasons, going all the way back to Genesis 3 and what Satan told Eve in the garden, what Satan, how Satan tempted Eve was to directly attack the goodness of God and to construe God's word, his will, his commandments as somehow coming from something less than perfect generosity. Think back to Genesis 3. What does the serpent say to Eve? God doesn't want you to have happiness. Otherwise, he wouldn't wouldn't prohibit you from that tree. Right from that moment, it has been the constant temptation issued forth from the father of lies himself to make us think that God does not want us to be happy. That God does not want us to enjoy life. And God does not want us to enjoy him. I venture to say that perhaps many of you, if you were to be asked, what are the main attributes of God? God's goodness probably would not rank among the top. And we would think of attributes such as God's holiness and his justice and his wrath. And certainly those are as true as God's goodness. But there is something inside of us due to that constant temptation, that whispering from the father of lies, that God does not want us to be happy. That he's a stern God. That he's more apt to be upset than he is to be generous. But such an impression, such a figment of imagination regarding God is not the biblical testimony as we will see. God's goodness, moreover, can be summarized with these three characteristics, as as we will see when we look at the biblical testimony. First of all, God is inherently good. God is inherently good. What does that mean? It means that all goodness is derived from God himself. He is the giver of every good gift, as James 1.17 says. And he is good not by any kind of pressure from the outside. He is good not because we somehow pray to make him good or we somehow obey enough to make him good, not at all. And yet so many religions of the world think of God precisely in that manner. No, God is inherently good. Nothing from the outside makes him gooder. He is inherently and perfectly good. Secondly, God is infinitely good. There's no lack of goodness in God. He is perfect goodness. God is not good because he just does good things. He is perfectly good, infinitely good in his essence. And that goodness defines all of God's attributes, his justice, his holiness, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, All of those attributes are defined by this foundational quality. And third, God is immutably good. He is immutably good. His goodness does not wax or wane. He suffers no mood swings, nor does the problem of evil challenge him in his expression of goodness. It's not that Satan has somehow thrown a wrench into God's plan and and now God can't be as good as he originally wanted to be good. He now has to act in wrath and, and justice. Not at all. God is immutably good. He has never, he's never changed in the, the goodness, the perfect goodness of his essence. Now taking this a little further, and we will see this when we get into the biblical witness. But we can see that as the Bible describes God's good character, we see that that goodness is manifest in three dimensions. First of all, God is good to his creation. God is good to his creation. God is is good to everything that 
he has made. He, he does not create arbitrarily, only to then inflict harm on what he has made. He is not sadistic. No, he creates, and in his character, it is his disposition to be good to that which he has made. Secondly, and even more so, God is especially good to his image bearers. So you can think of it this way, that, that, that at, the, at the base level, God is already perfectly good to every single object of his creative work. He is good to it perfectly. But then he is especially good to those he has created who bear his image, to mankind. God is especially good to those created in his image. And even just a quick look, a glance at Psalm 8 communicates this. When, when the psalmist speaks of man describing God's creation of him as, as God crowning mankind, the, his image bearers with glory and majesty. And we'll look more into this witness, but we see in the scriptures that there is a special place in God's goodness, in his perfect goodness, to be especially good to his image bearers, a kind of goodness that excels and is more vivid and personal than his goodness, which is already perfect to all of creation. And then thirdly, God is exceptionally good to his children. God is exceptionally good to his children. God's exceptional goodness is to his elect, to those he has decided to save from themselves and from the due penalty to their sinfulness. God is exceptionally good to his children. And when we think of these different dimensions, it's not to say that somehow God's goodness is lacking in category number one, in in God's goodness to his, his creation. No, God is already perfectly good to the things that he has created. And when we think of category three and God's goodness to his children, it's not that somehow God's goodness is deficient to the category number two of all of God's image bearers. No, he's already perfect in his goodness to all of mankind. It's just that his goodness to his own children is an exceptionally beautiful kind of goodness. You can look at it this way. You can think of it as a triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle is already perfect goodness. And that triangle at the bottom is is that, that, that goodness that God shows, that advantage, that benefit, that blessing that God demonstrates to all of his good creation, all of his creation. But then in intensity, as we move up the triangle, you then have a narrower category. And this narrower category is the category that receives God's goodness in a special way. And that category is made up of all who bear God's image. God does not show partiality at that level. All who bear his image are recipients of this special kind of goodness. But then at the top, at the height, the the most intense expression of perfect goodness, you have his children, those born not of flesh and blood, but by his will, those who have come to, by God's special working, have come to be liberated from the bondage of sin and have come to embrace the Son of God as their object of faith. I like what J.I. Packer says in explaining this differentiation. He says this, quote, God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways. Did you hear the difference? God is good, perfectly good, to all in some ways, and to some in all ways. Now this immediately raises the question, well, what about those who reject God's goodness? And and that leads us to make a point of clarification here as we define the goodness of God to explain what it does not mean. 
And when we talk about what God's goodness does not mean, we, we have to recognize this, that, 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 that God is good does not mean that he must somehow have to deny himself if he is going to express justice, righteousness, if he's going to judge. Sometimes that's the logical conclusion that some will arrive at. Well, if God is all perfectly good, it means there cannot be any place for judgment. And if he is to judge, it means he must take off the good cap and put on the bad cap. And that is a serious misunderstanding and distortion of the biblical witness. Let's look at this for just a moment and answer it with three statements. First of all, God's goodness manifests itself already in patience towards sinners in that God does delay judgment. That is the common testimony from Genesis chapter 3 and on, that even though God promised that Adam and Eve in the day that they would partake of that fruit would die, what does God do in his goodness? He does not kill them immediately. There is patience And that patience is an expression of God's goodness. Acts chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, Paul is in the heart of modern-day Turkey speaking to a very, very pagan audience. And he says this, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He was patient, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, and that he did good and gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is patient towards sinners. Secondly, God's goodness manifests itself in the invitation to salvation to escape the judgment. Go back to Acts chapter 14. What is Paul doing there right on the spot as he preaches there in Lystra to this very pagan audience? That, that he says on the one hand that God has patience, but, but now Paul is preaching this universal message. He is preaching the gospel without partiality to all who, who would hear. And that invitation to salvation shows God's goodness and that he makes this, this gospel invitation known. He does not keep it from hearing. And then number three, God's goodness then does manifest itself in the righteous exercise of both discipline and judgment. Discipline and judgment are expressions of God's goodness. In fact, go back to Exodus chapter 34 when we saw this very same idea pronounced in this great declaration In verse 6, all the way to the middle of verse 7, you have all of the merciful, gracious qualities of God listed, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But that's not all of the exposition of all of God's goodness that he said he was going to reveal back in chapter 33, verse 19. In the second half of verse 7, We read this, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That too is an exposition of God's goodness. The fact that he does bring justice, that he does punish sin, he gives it its due recompense is an expression of goodness. In fact, we see that even in our own lives. God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12 Remember that text in Hebrews chapter 12 where we read this in verse 10, for they, that is earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for what? For our good. Even that abrasive file that God takes to our backs in response to our, our slowness of obedience, 
in response to the flesh that still is stubborn and still resists submission to the lordship of Christ, God takes that file and sometimes it's very abrasive and it hurts. As the, as the sin in our lives is exposed and the consequences are brought on and we think, wow, that's not good. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, that is good. Because God does this for our good, and he goes on to say this at the end of verse 10, and this is, this is the goodness of it, so that we may share in his holiness. No, there is no, there is no contradictory nature between God's goodness and his justice, God's goodness and his judgment. Not at all. In fact, in reality, the problem is, that God is so good. Often we think of it in the other sense and that God is not good enough and there's the problem of evil. Why does God not step in? And we have all these various questions that we demand answers for. We see all of this evil and we wonder where God is and we call it the problem of evil and it is such a conundrum to us and yet the real problem is not the problem of evil. The real problem is the problem of goodness. How patient God is. With us, how patient God is with the world. It's like that episode in Chronicles of Narnia when the kids get to that hut of the beavers and Susan asks the question about Aslan and asks the question, is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. That is our God. And we see this all the way from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Let's look at some of the testimony now to this goodness. First of all, there's all this general testimony that we could see in all, especially the, all the Psalms, the hymn book of God's people over and over and over again, making this, this repeated assertion, this proposition, this declaration, God is good. We saw it already in Exodus, but let's look at some Psalms. Psalm 34 verse 8, David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Remember, I defined goodness as the the advantage that God brings. God brings blessing. That is his goodness. And David sees that and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then asks that question, that rhetorical question, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him? What advantage is there? The answer is Great. Psalm 100, verse 5 For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 119, verse 68 The psalmist says, You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. In Matthew 19, verse 17, in response to the to to the attacks of of various sectors of the religious leadership in Israel. A statement is made by a rich young ruler, and and Jesus responds in, in in this statement, on the one hand, doing some work there in the logic of that rich young ruler, but at the same time making an expression about the goodness of God when he says this, there is only one who is good, only one. But now let's take that and and look at the testimony to God's goodness in those three dimensions that we already mentioned. First of all, God is good to his creation. We see this at the very, very beginning when God begins and, and, and accomplishes that creative work in those six days over and over and over again. You have this declaration made that God saw what he had made and it was good. God saw what he had made and it was good. 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 And then when he finished, it was very good. From the very start, what God did was very good. And that isn't just a flippant assessment. It was very good because God made it so. He showed himself to his creation as bringing the blessing, as as bringing the advantage, the benefit 
to it, and therefore it was good. Psalm 104, verse 27, speaking of God's creatures, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them. They gather it up. You open your hand, and they are satisfied with good. We have become so scientific in our understanding, so naturalistic that we look at the whole process of the the whole food chain as as just this impersonal process. And the, the psalmist had it so much better. He recognized that the feeding of every creature came from the hand of God himself. You may not have even thought of it when you had your dinner this evening. God was feeding you, and that was what he does with all of his creation. Psalm 145, verse 9, and then verses 15 and 16. Again, we see this testimony to the, to, of the goodness of God to all creation. The psalmist writes, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. You see this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he says this in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field and how they grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes The grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. The beauty of the fields. How often do we think of it, even when we look into the mountains now, snow-covered, and say, God did that to show his goodness to us, to his creation, for our enjoyment. God did that. James 1.17 says, Every good and every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Secondly, the second dimension is God's goodness to his image bearers. To, his, to, 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 to humanity, to mankind. And we see this, as I said, in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8. And the psalmist writes this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. God has crowned mankind, his image bearers, with glory and majesty. Psalm 25, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. He is good. Now notice the conclusion that is drawn from that assertion. Therefore, God instructs sinners in the way. God gives a special revelation to sinners because he loves sinners. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20 Here Solomon writes, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself, and all of one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. There, Solomon is recognizing 
that even though we have this vain world and you have this process of laboring and then, then comes the reward, nonetheless, even in that, even in life outside of the Garden of Eden where there is sweat, where there is labor and toil and thistles, there still is enjoyment. Why is that? Solomon says, because God is good. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why does God say that? It's because he's good. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, why are you called sons of the Most High when you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you? Why is that? Because God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is good to the wicked. He is generous. His disposition is one of goodness to them. A.W. Pink put it this way with respect to the joys that all humanity has. He said this, God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without the food of being pleasing to our palates. How his benevolence appears in the varied flavors which he has given to meats, vegetables, and fruits. God has not only given us senses but also that which gratifies them. And this too reveals his goodness. The earth might have been as fertile as it is without its surface being so delightfully variated. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of birds. Whence then this loveliness, this charm, so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, the tender mercies of the Lord are over all his works. Think of that the next time when you enjoy a steak. Those flavors. Not only the ability to enjoy them, unless you're still suffering from long-term COVID and have no taste. But think of that flavor, that God has given you the ability and then he has also given you the thing that tastes so good or that smells so good, that looks so good. That is God's goodness. These things, brothers, are not arbitrary And if you have eyes to see and you walk out of this this worship center and you start to observe and you look past the sinfulness of man and see the things that God has made and you open your eyes and you look for them and you will be overwhelmed by all the ways that God is so good to us. And then, of course, there is an exceptional level of goodness Goodness to his children, to the redeemed. Just look at Psalm 23, right? Where the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, what I shall not want. That is God's goodness to his children. That to have Yahweh as your shepherd means you will lack no good thing. He goes on to say this in verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's not a statement that is drawn in reflection of all of the psalmist's good works. That is a statement made because of an awareness of the disposition of God, especially to his children. He is inherently good. He cannot help but be good. And he wants us to to have happiness in that goodness. Psalm 31, verse 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. 
The Lord gives grace and glory. And, and, and notice verse, the second half of this verse. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Notice the benefit, the advantage. Just two weeks ago, I was talking with someone who is struggling with cancer. And, and, and the, the person was sharing her testimony of how she has, has worked through various issues and the, the common responses that the flesh wants to, to bring into the equation. And she said the verse that was so very important for her was Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold. And her response is, that means this cancer is good. And when you get to that point, and you can see past what is so often the, the, the obstacle in our eyesight, and you see past it, it gives you a totally different perspective. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd And the good shepherd brings this benefit to his people. What does he do? He lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 32 of that same chapter. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all good things? The argument from the, 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 the greater to the lesser. If God gave his son, if God was willing to do that and to deliver him over for us, how much more will he not do something easier to give us all good things? Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Psalm, or Philippians 1 verse 6, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is exceedingly, abundantly, Good to his children. Now, what does this demand from us? As we, as we contemplate this, this amazing perfection of God, what does this lead us to in terms of our own thoughts and responses? First of all, it means we must believe that God is good. As I've already said, we are afraid sometimes to have good thoughts about God. We are afraid to have good thoughts about God. And you might say, well, what about my own sin? I know who I am. What about my own sin? And and, and, uh, there's, there's no way that I deserve that kind of goodness. I deserve the sternness of God. And the answer to that is, yeah, that's what you deserve. But remember... God is good not because of you. He is good to you because of himself. And what we have to do is work hard for the glory of God so that we can enjoy God and all the goodness that he wants to manifest to us, that we put aside those bad thoughts, those thoughts where we're afraid to think good things about God, to think that God just wants to be good to us, period all because of who he is. And what you contribute, yeah, is that black background. But his goodness is the diamond that shines in its brilliance. And God wants the diamond to get the attraction. Put away those fearful thoughts that maybe God isn't good to me because of me and instead say, no, God is good and will be good despite me. It's who he is. Taste and see, the psalmist says, David says, taste and see that he is good. Reflect upon that 
exposition of God's goodness and in Exodus 34 that he is one who forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. That is part of his goodness. And he loves to put that on display. To forgive those ugly sins. He loves to do that. He loves to show just how good he is. And that's why we call the gospel what good news. It is good news. It's what we read of in 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You could look at it in this way. And this is goodness. Not that we were good to God. But that he is good to us. And so sent his son to deal with our badness. John Owen picks this thought up and deals with this fear of having good thoughts. He says this, quote, Men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it is a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. I'm speaking of saints. They, they can judge him as hard, austere, severe, almost implacable and fierce. The very worst affections of the very worst of men, the most hated by God. Is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not his design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? Assure yourself then, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep up our hearts unto him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Friend, believe that God is good. Believe that it is his inherent disposition to you to be generous. That's who he is. Get rid of that thought of God as austere and just angry at you all the time. Believe that he is good. Secondly, Accept that all God's ways are good. We are prone to think that only we know what is good for us. Only we know what is good in our situation. And we forget all the other qualities of God that we've already studied, including his omniscience. We forget that God is omniscient, that he's all wise. But Genesis 50 verse 20 shows us what God does in bad circumstances. Where Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. Now stop there for just a moment. Remember how many years had passed since those brothers threw him in an empty well and sold him into slavery. Years. Spending years spinning his wheels in dungeons, being falsely accused, all kinds of things. And those brothers meant it for evil, but then... Joseph looks past and says, God meant it all for good. Romans 8.28, we read this already. We know that God causes, he causes all things, all things in the lives of those who are his children. God causes every single negative detail, every single negative circumstance, every kind of evil done against you, He works that out for your good. We saw this as well in Hebrews 12, verse 10. In his discipline of us, he disciplines us for our good. He puts us through that that ringer. He files us down. He gets rid of all that sinful stuff in our lives. It's painful, but he does it for our good. We must accept that God's ways are good I I like what what Martin Luther said when he said God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line, and that's exactly what he does with all of those painful circumstances in our lives. John Calvin said it similarly, whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. And that's what we need to embrace, that yeah, we're going to go through pain, 
But if we have the bias or assumption, the the presupposition that that circumstance is inherently evil, we will not see God's good in it. But if we realize that God is inherently, infinitely, immutably good, and that nothing can come to us from his sovereign hand that is not working to our good, if we approach the circumstance understanding those things, we will see and we will be like that lady I talked with who said I could see my cancer as a good thing from God. And that changes everything. Everything. Jerry Bridges stated it similarly. He said this, nothing can be more consoling to the man of God than the conviction that the Lord who made the world governs the world and that every event, great and small, prosperous and adverse, is under the absolute disposal of him who doth all things well and who regulates all things for the good of his people. Accept these circumstances, brothers. Submit your yourselves to those circumstances. Change your mind. Take those thoughts captive. Bend them to the knee of Christ's lordship and realize these are good things for me. I don't understand it now, but I do know the end. And the end is all good. Believe that. Number three, respond to God's manifold goodness with gratitude. You can call God's blessings God's variegated goodness. Blessings come in different shapes and forms and quantities. But our response to that, there's no quid pro quo here. It's not that, that God does a little bit of good and then we do a little bit of good to get more good out of God. No, what, what God requires of us is a mere response of gratitude. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. Psalm 106, verse 1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. You just see this theme over and over and over again. The psalmist realizes there's nothing to repay God. God is not a debtor. He, He will not be repaid. He is generous. He's a giver. And he gives good things. And so what, are, what is our response to all of that? To think that we have to work it off? No, not at all. God, God wants you to recognize there's nothing you can do to pay it off or to give back to him. He doesn't want it. He does not want it. He wants you to say thank you. He wants you to recognize it comes from a God who loves you. A God who's disposed favorably to you. Spurgeon put it this way, to us needy creatures, the goodness of God is the first attribute which excites praise, and that praise takes the form of gratitude. We praise the Lord truly when we give him thanks for what we have received from his goodness. Let us never be slow to return unto the Lord our praise. To thank him is the least we can do. Let us not neglect it. In fact, when you read Romans chapter 1, particularly the verse 21, and you read the, 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 the key sign of the pagan unbeliever, it is this, that even though they knew God, they did not honor him nor give him thanks. Number four, reflect God's goodness in your own life. God's goodness is what we call a communicable attribute. It is intended to be reflected by his image bearers. He has created us to be like a mirror so that when he gives us goodness and he shows his goodness to us, it reflects to the world around. That's how we ought to see our lives. And you see that over and over. I won't read all these verses, but Proverbs 3 verse 27, Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10, 3 John 11. I'll read that one. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. You look at Matthew, Matthew 5, 44 to 45, Romans 12, 21, Ephesians 10, uh, 2, verse 10, that we were created for good works 
And that Galatians 5 verse 22 says that one of the, 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 the definitions of the fruit of the Spirit is, is that it's goodness. We produce goodness. So be good for God's glory and because he's good. Do good because God is good and you want to reflect his glory. Be a benefit. Too, too many men live their lives being a, a, being a, a, a leech. They just leech goodness from others all the time. And as, as we understand the character of God, our approach is, is the exact opposite. That as we understand our Father, our Creator better, and we recognize our glorious, our, our glorious blessing of His benefit in our lives, then we turn around and say, you know what? As a son of God, my, my greatest ambition now is to be the opposite of a leech. I want to bring the benefit into every single circumstance that I come into, whether it's at work, in my home, in my neighborhood, I want to bring the benefit. I'm bringing the blessing. That's what it means to reflect the goodness of God. Finally, number five, seek God as your greatest good. We were created to be satisfied only by the greatest good. That's what your heart's desire is. You want that goodness, and you know very well that in the history of your life, you've dabbled in a lot of things that are far less than good, and they have left you empty. They've taken you down dark alleys, dead ends. And the issue isn't that you need to stop looking for the good. The issue is you're looking for it in the wrong places. That your heart will only be fully and finally satisfied when you see God as the ultimate good. Not even just his works, but him himself. Psalm 73, and we'll close with this, the testimony of Asaph. Psalm 73, we read that Asaph was one who struggled with the goodness of God. And he makes the claim in verses 1 to 14, he makes the claim that God is too good to the wicked and not good enough to the faithful. He makes that claim and concludes, surely in vain, I have kept my way pure. But we see in verses 15 to 17, a turning point. He comes into the sanctuary of God. And then immediately everything falls into place. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, verse 17, then I perceived their end. And then beginning in verse 18, he, he gives his wonderful confession, this newfound confession of faith. And, and we read these great words that, that Asaph stated where he realized that the issue isn't pursuing the wealth or the health. The issue is pursuing God himself. And when we put our focus on him and pursue him as the greatest good, we find our heart's desire. Let me close in reading verses 18 all the way through to the end of verse 28. Surely you set them, the wicked, in evil places. You cast them down to destruction how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And in these words, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Men, seek God as your greatest good and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we confess our
aptness to think low thoughts of you and to have a general attitude toward you as though you were austere, distant from us, uncaring, unconcerned, that you would much rather be angry with us. And yet when we read these texts, we see that that is not the case, that you are good and you do good, and you are delighted in manifesting that goodness in our lives despite who we are. Indeed, we are that black background and your goodness is the diamond. And we pray, Father, that you would manifest the glory of that diamond in our lives. Change hearts even here tonight in terms of their thinking of you. And may they come to see you as the God who is infinitely, inherently, and immutably good, generous, and kind. May that reality seize us and change our lives and make us happy. We pray this so you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.